Hi guys. It's good to be with you. Uh, I've, I've had a great camp so far. I haven't had to do any work. I've just been listening to Josh set us up so well, talking about worship, and I've been able to ride around on my golf cart because, you know, I don't know why God gave me legs, and uh, listen to uh, the greatest expositor of all times, our pastor MacArthur. Uh, yesterday was just an awesome day. That sermon in the morning was one of the best I've ever heard him preach at camp. So I'm just incredibly encouraged, and I'm excited to speak to you from the Word of God. I know uh, that God works at camp, that it's these times, there's so much fun stuff we do, but it's these times that have eternal impact on souls. And so it's an extraordinary privilege for me to be here. I love high school students. I think that they represent almost limitless potential for God's kingdom. And I think this generation is such a significant one. And so I consider it a great honor to speak to you from the word of God. And I anticipate great things that God will do in your lives as you dedicate your life to him, especially as we think about this theme of worship. I mean, it's a big theme, worship. It's one that's common to us, and I think it's one that's familiar to us. And as I have you turn in your Bible tonight to Psalm 95, Psalm 95 is where I want to direct our attention. And I know Josh has already spent some time in Psalm 117, uh, but the Psalms are a book about worship. They're the worship manual of God's people from the very beginning. So it's appropriate we spend a little bit more time there. And I want to talk to you from Psalm 95 tonight, uh, a psalm that is, what, what I, we're going to call the sermon, a, a call a call and a caution for worshipers. A call and a caution for worshipers. And I think part of that will be familiar to you, and I think part of it is unfamiliar. Cautions are not something we associate with worship. Warnings are not really something we think about when we think about worshiping God, right? It makes sense that we would talk about a call to worship, an invitation to worship, but I wonder, before studying Psalm 95, if you're mindful of a caution about worship. And so that's what I want to talk to you tonight. You know that cautions are all around us. There's even signs up at camp warning you not to do stupid things. And sometimes in our overly litigious society, people are afraid of lawsuits, and so they put warning labels on all kinds of stuff. You've seen it, right? You've seen the warning labels on a chainsaw, you know, your chainsaw that you got your sophomore year in high school. Uh, that says, this is a real warning label, it says, do not hold wrong end of chainsaw. Uh, there is a famous lawsuit in my hometown of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where an elderly woman sued McDonald's for serving her coffee that was hot. Yeah, it burned her. And ever since then, coffee cups say, warning, hot. <laughs> Warnings and cautions all around us. Vidal Sassoon makes a hairdryer that says on it, do not use well sleeping. I don't understand. Weird warnings all around us. And, and I've, I've, in sermons before, made fun of these very warnings. And it was just a few days before camp that I was with my family in Santa Fe. We were having just a little kind of mini vacation right before the storm of camp came upon us. Uh, we were staying at a hotel and we were sleeping in. You know, that means my kids will sleep until like 6.15. And... And we were, we were having fun, and, and I get up pretty early these days, and I got up kind of early, and I thought I might go for what I call a run walk, and, and so I got up, it was five something, and it was dark, and when you have little kids, and we have four little kids, and I didn't want to wake them up because that would wake up their mother, and she would blame me for the, the circumstances, and so I was being silent and respectful of the sleepers. And so I crept into the bathroom, not wanting to turn on a lot of lights, to, to brush my teeth, and, which I, I try to do on Tuesdays at least. So <laughs> I snuck into the bathroom, and, and I didn't have my glasses on, so I was disoriented, and it was five-something, and I begin to brush my teeth. And I instantly think, I believe I have had a stroke, because my toothpaste didn't taste like toothpaste. 
My Crest 3D white was not working for me. And so, in confusion, I reapplied. <laughs> and I brushed my teeth some more. And there was just something off at 5.45 or so about my toothbrushing experience, one I'm familiar with from my weekly toothbrushing. And I continue to brush my teeth, and there's something wrong with the viscosity, but I'm mostly concerned about flavor. And I think, how has this toothpaste expired? I used it, you know, I think yesterday, and, and I'm just not understanding. And then I had a dawning realization. So I picked up my phone and took a picture because I knew my wife would want to use this against me uh, just in marital counseling later. Uh, so I took this picture. That's me. Sorry for the immodesty. But <laughs> I took that picture because I needed to remember this moment because I've often just thought cautions and warnings are not for someone as intelligent and, and wise as I am. And, and then I looked over at my toothbrush. It's a travel toothbrush. There's something wrong there. It's like the toothpaste is not coming off. And then I looked at the next thing. I looked over at the tube of toothpaste. So, friends, that's diaper cream. That's diaper cream. It's diaper cream. You're welcome. Yeah. It's diaper cream. So, you know, you, you probably don't use a lot of diaper cream anymore, but, and we don't either is the funny thing. So I think maybe, you know, I'm not sure if my enemy snuck into the room and did this or, or what, but anyway, it doesn't come off, you know, with liquid. That's the whole point of diaper cream. So it took some time to excavate it. And then I thought, well, what does it say on there? And I kind of zoomed into that, that thing, and it says, if ingested, which, you know, I mean, normally in the sermon you go, who would eat diaper cream? Oh, stupids. <laughs> so I look on there, and it says, call poison control immediately. <laughs> and so, oh, no, I'm kidding. And so I looked it up on the Internet. I was too embarrassed to actually call poison control in Santa Fe. <laughs> Hola. Yo es stupid. Uh, so I just Googled it, and it was good news all around. I was praising the Lord. It's just a mild laxative. So, yeah, I said that up here just now. Okay, warnings can be weird. They can be helpful, and this one was memorable for me. I have one for you that isn't from a company concerned about a lawsuit. I have a warning for you as a worshiper, and I think that you'll see that this is a warning that ought to be taken very, very, very seriously. An invitation to worship is normal for us. It was normal then in biblical times, and it's normal now. Your, your pastor at your church on Sunday morning probably gets up and says, it's, it's time to worship, or he'll read a, a verse of scripture, maybe even Psalm 95 verse one that says, come and, and worship. The call to worship is something you understand. The invitation to worship is familiar, but I don't know that you understand a warning about worship. And I want to present both of those things to you tonight. So let's begin by reading Psalm 95. Psalm 95. Oh, come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, 
as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. So reads the word of the very living God. May he write it on our hearts tonight. This book, the Psalter, is an ancient hymn book. The title in Hebrew is Telahim. It means praises. It's a book full of lyrics, musical notations even. But it's so much more than a songbook. You know that. It's a book that teaches us what worship is and how to worship. It tells us about God and what he's like and it gives us words to sing and it teaches us who this God is that is so worthy of song. It tells us who we worship and how he is to be worshiped. And I think that's one of the reasons that so many Christians love the Psalms. I don't know about you, but I often turn to the Psalms when I'm trying to read my Bible and and trying to get my heart right. I'll open it and the Psalms are large, they're in the middle, and, and often I'll find myself reading the Psalms and sympathizing and understanding that these songs seem to understand what I'm trying to say to God. They're useful in prayer. They're useful in showing us how and why we should worship. One thing I love about the Psalms is there's such rich theology here to be gleaned, and this Psalm is no exception from that. It tells us things about God that show us why he is worthy, why he is to be the object of our worship and adoration and praise. The rich theology of the Psalter, the the teaching about God here is a vision presented unlike any other place in the Bible besides the book of Revelation. It has a divine purpose and arrangement and in this section of this songbook, these are all called enthronement psalms, psalms that would have been associated with the coronation of a king. So when David would take the throne in Israel or his son that followed, whenever there was a man of God on the throne, the people would sing these songs to remind themselves that their king ultimately was not this human being installed on the throne, but it was Yahweh, their covenant God, who had revealed himself to Israel. And so Psalm 95 is a theocratic psalm. It's a a worship song about God's kingship. And it sets its tone right off the bat, showing us that there is much to be adored about God. We learned on our first night of camp that praise is something quite ordinary for all people. Some of you praise stamp collections. Some of you praise Labrador retrievers. Some of you praise uh, other hobbies and interests like video games or soccer, God forbid. Uh, But We all praise things that we appreciate. We all praise things that we love, that we think about, that occupy us. We speak well of them. And some of you are very involved in praising someone else, a member of the opposite sex. There's poems to be written about her, right? I mean, just the other night, some kid came up here and quoted like British love poetry. I mean, some of you are really yearning. So... We all understand that basically praise is, is something that's so human to us. I mean, we, we speak of the things we love. We will yelp them. Best pizza ever. No matter what it is, something ordinary or something extraordinary, a hobby that occupies us for a few minutes or or for the entirety of our lives, those things become objects of praise to us. And this song sets up that one object that ought to be at the forefront of all praise of every single creature, and it begins by inviting all of us to come. It uses that word three times. It says in verse one, oh come, let us sing to the Lord. And then in verse two, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. And then again, it it calls us to come. In verse six, let us worship and bow down. This song is making a motion for you to approach God. And it uses three different words in Hebrew, all translated to our English phrase, oh enter or oh come, but three words all speaking of increasing intimacy towards God. One 
author sums up the message of Psalm 95 this way. Psalm 95, he says, tells us how to worship. Indeed, it does more. It's a call to worship. It explains how and why we should worship and warns of what can happen if we do not worship but harden our hearts instead. And so to look at Psalm 95 is truly to receive a call to worship and a caution about worship. And so let's look at it in in those two parts. Real simply, verses 1 through 7 are the call to worship, and verses 7 through 11 are the caution to worship. The psalm is, I, I think, divided very obviously. I think you can hear its change in tone with that word today. And so we'll look at the first part being the call to worship, the second part being the caution to worship. And it opens with that phrase, O come. It's obvious. You can't miss this because it says it three times. O come in our English Bibles. It's a kind of invitation. The first word is one that speaks of just walk over here, to approach. It's a simple word about one foot in front of the other. And it says, come over here and sing. The second word in verse 2 is another word in Hebrew that speaks of being with someone in their presence. It's often used in the Old Testament when someone has a personal encounter with God himself to be in God's presence. The third word is the most intimate of all. It speaks of entering into something, like into a house, uh, to be the object of hospitality. And so these three words all saying come and worship in English are actually telling the worshiper to draw closer and closer and closer in intimacy and in understanding of who God is and how he desires to be worshiped and adored. All this is put in the imperative tense. In other words, it's a command. This is not a mere invitation, like you receive an invitation to a birthday party. Uh, Click on the Evite and I will come to your birthday party. Hey, you want to hang out on Friday? It's an invitation. You can say yes, you can politely decline it, or you can ignore it. This is not like that. This is an imperative command. This isn't, hey, would you like to come to my birthday? This is a summons from a judge. This is a demand that you must come and worship. And this invitation to worship starts us and reminds us and gets us thinking that worship is non-optional. Worship is, is not something that you can say, it's not for me. You see, God is your creator. He made you. He loves you. He knows you intimately. And for you to decline this invitation is not just to say, I'm not interested. It's to rebel against the one who made you for the purpose he made you for. And so this language is strong. Come, sing to the Lord. You know, sometimes at camp, especially that first night, the singing is very weak. And then as the week goes along, it gets stronger. And I think it's just becoming more comfortable. Uh, You're covered in mud. You've had a few teeth knocked out, et cetera. And you're you're happy to sing. You're, You're having an encounter with God. You're learning more about him. You know, singing, even singing is a part of worship that is non optional Coming into his presence with a heart of gratitude in verse 2. And then coming with this even physical expression of worship in verse 6 that involves the entirety of one's person. The specifics of bowing down on the ground uh, are not the point here. It's that the person's entire person, all of you, your entire body, your heart, your mind, your soul is devoted to this worship. All of it is commanded, and it's commanded to a general audience. It is shouted out to all of creation to hear that this is the king above all gods, his Uh, The presentation is to the depths of the earth, to the heights of the mountains. The implication of the beginning of this song has to do with all of you. God is commanding you and God is inviting you to worship him. He's summoning you to be in his presence, to speak well of him because he is worth it. You see, it's not that God is insecure. C.S. Lewis, when he was converted, had a problem with the Psalms initially. He, he writes about it in his, in his book about the Psalms. He, he said God sounded like a cranky old lady when he read the Psalms. Praise me. 
someone not getting enough attention. But upon further reflection and study, Lewis realized that God wasn't asking us to worship him. He was demanding our worship, not for his good, but for our good. He wanted to show us in worship that he is the only one that can ever truly satisfy that longing in the human heart to elevate something greater. So all the tiny worships that we put forth, all these micro praises are just images and pieces of what God intends you to see. I mean, if you can appreciate the mountains in Glorietta, and if you can appreciate this powerful rainstorm that comes thundering through the camp, and if you can sense an otherness of that, an awesomeness in the night sky when you see all those stars, every single tiny expression of praise, whether it be one that is a romantic one towards someone that you find beautiful. All of those are mere shadows and images of your soul's deepest desire to realize its purpose in worshiping the God who made you for himself. Do you get that? Do you start to understand that you were built to worship, you were built to praise, and so when God commands you to worship, he's inviting you to your full purpose in knowing who you were meant to be. And as you read this song, you see it grows in intimacy and it grows in scope as well. See what it says? Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. This worship is, is loud. It's not subtle. It's not, you know, I, I got this joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? No, this isn't down in your heart. This is big. This is shouts of acclamation. This is a gratitude that is obvious, that is impermeable. The Lord is a great God, it says, a great king above all gods. And that may to you seem like a small statement in verse three, but it is a, a call to recognize God's greatness, his bigness. Hebrews is a simple language. It uses simple words. That word great is used in the book of Jonah about Nineveh being a great city. It means it's a big city. There's lots of people who live there. It's used in the same book to speak of that big fish that swallowed Jonah. Why was it a great fish? Because it was massive and it ate a guy. So this word great has something to do with God's scope. Now God is spirit. He isn't seven feet tall like our basketball friends from the master's college who walked into a restaurant with me the other day and a lady who was approximately four foot eight went, <laughs> And I stepped in front of seven foot tall Tim and said, I'm 6'3". She wasn't talking to me, I guess. God's bigness, his greatness has to do with his glorious perfections being unable to be contained. God is far more than you think he is. He's far more holy than you think he is. He's far more righteous than you think he is. He's far more faithful than you think he is. And that's why these people are called to sing. That's why we are called to make a joyful noise. That's why we are called to gratitude. It's why we're called to songs of praise because Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all other gods. You see, he's a sovereign God. And he's more sovereign than you think he is. He's in charge of this world. And the psalmist wants our praise to be expansive, to be increasing. But it is our tendency as sinful human beings in a fallen world to have praise that diminishes instead of expands. I have a friend who invited our family to go to their cabin once. And that first invitation to the cabin made me nervous because I'm not a camper. I like plumbing. I don't want bugs. I don't feel like a good thing when I'm in a tent. I like beds. It's just me. Some of you may like camping. That's fine. It's a fallen world. <laughs> camping, you know, cabins, it doesn't appeal to me. 
And so, but we love these people. And they said, come to the cabin. And, and I said, okay, Merrily, let's do this. You know, just praying, praying, Lord, help us to have a good attitude. Be grateful for the cabin. And I'm just picturing, you know, a guy with an axe and, you know, a deer with an axe and <laughs> bugs with an axe. And I just don't like camping. And so we go to the cabin. We ask, you know, do we bring sleeping bags, bug spray, an axe? What should we bring? We have everything at the cabin. You don't need to bring anything. So we drive up into the San Bernardino Mountains. We're following them. I think maybe we met them there. And we pull up and a gate, larger than any home I've ever occupied, opens before me. Similar to how I think it'll be when you go to heaven. And there's a house that in no one's definition should ever be called a cabin there. <laughs> like a mighty mansion, a Babylonian temple maybe. It's the best house ever. It has speed boats. It has bedrooms. It's got marble stuff. It's nice, you guys. And my fear of camping and cabining melted away, and we had this great weekend. And they were so generous. We loved being there. And they were telling us stories about... Uh, People, they let people use this, this cabin. <laughs> cabin. And they say, you know, you should see some of the thank you notes. And I actually looked at some in the, the book there. People wrote like Shakespeare after going to the cabin. Best cabin ever. You've changed my life. I understand Sabbath rest. I mean, it was just, you know, <laughs> effusive stuff. They got a thesaurus out. They're writing words. Gratitude, thankful. Gratitude, thankful. I don't, I don't have a thesaurus out. So, and then they told us funny stories. Just that reminded me of this basic truth that our praise has a tendency to diminish instead of expand because... When people went back a second time, they'd usually send an email, not, you know, a fountain pen calligraphied thank you note like the first time, but hey, thanks for the cabin. Can we do next summer, 4th of July weekend? And then the third time, they'd start to not send a thank you note and just a quick text to, hey, can I reserve the, the cabin again? Maybe two weeks this time? And then the fourth time, they start to notice, you know, this boat doesn't quite go as fast as it used to. And I feel like, you know, this could use a fresh coat of paint. That's neat. <laughs> There's strange sounds that come from the cabin. <laughs> and it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we all become familiar with things that once were so impressive to us, whether it was that great Christmas gift that you slowly kind of grew tired of, or a sad story in a marriage where someone so deeply in love with this woman becomes disinterested and cold. There's a tendency in our praise to diminish instead of expand. And that is not how God intends our praise to be. Because our praise, when it finds its true object in him, should have a tendency to be expansive. It should grow and increase. Because when we worship God, we're not worshiping uh, simply something created. To, to go to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, I, I recommend it if, if you ever want to see something stunning and beautiful. You can look at, at paintings that are exquisite. And you can stand there and stare at a masterpiece for quite some time. And then you can step outside and look at the Pacific Ocean and just be in awe of its breathtaking expanse. But eventually, it may grow old to you. If you took that tram ride every day, if you went over and over again, eventually it may become ordinary to you. 
You see, the difference between God and uh, a painting or a masterpiece or the ocean or the expanse of this solar system is that God is limitless. His character and attributes will not be exhausted after an eternity of worship. There are things that you will discover about God's manifold perfections 10,000 years from now when you're in heaven with him that will take your breath away for all of eternity. That's why this psalm calls us with such expansive language to consider the kingship of God as something that is a blessing to us and not something we should be accustomed to. The sovereignty of King Jesus should be of fresh and increasing glory to us day after day after day. That's why this psalmist shouts two times, once joyfully, once singing aloud, one time using the word sing. The worship is musical, it's loud, it's passionate, it's joyful because God is worthy of that kind of adoration. This joyful worship is commanded towards our affections that we would never grow cold of God's perfection, knowing that our worship is not ultimately and only for the glory of our feelings, but the glory of our God. You see, this exuberance and joy in worship that's described here is a reminder that we are not the recipients of that worship. God is the recipient. God is the object. And when we go into worship looking for our preferences to be touched and satisfied, to get an emotional experience, to have a snap, crackle, pop that we get from our favorite songs or our particular arrangement or style of worship music to feel something that isn't the point of worship because worship is not ultimately for us. It's ultimately for God. And when it's for God, then we receive the benefit of the realization of who God is and that emotion that comes there isn't based in some mere feeling, but instead it's a recognition that this is the same God who saved us from sin and hell and death and rescued us because of our Savior, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is emotion there, but it doesn't start with the feeling. It starts with the truth and it starts with the greatness of God. And there it expands to all creation as we lift up his holy name. Imagine the exuberance of Israel as they worship God in a loud, noisy torrent of praise with thanksgiving and psalms as people enter into joyful singing and shouting, a celebratory atmosphere, a festive atmosphere that would have been exciting and triumphant. That's what it should sound like in your youth group when you sing on Wednesday nights, even if there's eight of you. Because you're not doing it for each other, you're not doing it for the band or your youth pastor, you are singing praise to God himself. That's why joy is necessary, not optional. It's all based on this reality about God's greatness. And then you start to see that it's not just his greatness, but in verse six, oh come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, for he is our God, we're the people of his pasture, verse seven, and the sheep of his hand. This is something we understand. God is a shepherd, you know it from Psalm 23. You know Jesus identifies himself as the great shepherd. So now we've talked about God's greatness here, the expansiveness from the heights to the depths. The Hebrew people would have had pagan nations surrounding them and their gods were very local. Some were for mountaintops, some were for the sea, some were fertility. They all had different areas and different specializations, not the God of the Hebrew people. He was all, he was greatness, but greatness was also a reflection of God's intimate, personal goodness. See, God was great, he was king, but he was also the one who was our maker, one to kneel before 
our God, personal language, verse seven, that we were the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. We're getting closer and closer and more intimate in this language where God is a shepherd caring for his people and his people have worshiped him in jubilant ways, but getting closer and closer to him. And so there's this wonderful expression of God's expansive greatness and this wonderful expression of God's intimate closeness and his goodness on display in verses six and seven. And that's why we're called to worship. This omnipresent God who cannot be measured is intimately close to his people. He is called great over and over again in the Bible, but he's also called good. Do you understand what it would be like to have a God who is great, who is sovereign, who is powerful, but who is not good? Do you understand what it would be like to have a God who is good, who has warm feelings towards you and good intentions, but can't do anything about it? Our God is both great and good, and that helps us, and that gives us content for worship that's joyful and exuberant and pointed. The heights and the depths are his. The greatness and the goodness of God are before us, all of it expressing the totality of God's sovereignty. He is king, he is creator, he is our maker, he is our shepherd, and we respond in worship, in praise, in bowing down, in kneeling. All these words speaking of reverence at God's majesty, of honor in his presence, of knowing that he is one who is worthy for us to fall on our faces before Because God's creation's on display with the heights and the depths, but then we're reminded his creation is us as well. And so he has absolute rights over you, young person. Young man, God is in control of your life. He's put boundaries on it. He says you can go this far and no further. He has put you in the home that you were born in, in the economic status that you have, in the neighborhood that you come from, with the family members that you have. God has sovereignly placed you where you are in your life. And that is something that shouldn't frustrate you, but something that you should be able to channel to know that God has defined you as your maker. That this great God is also a shepherd who cares for you, who provides for you, young ladies. Do you think of God like that? Do you think of him as watching over you, as keeping you safe, of being close to you? This great, sovereign, omnipotent God is intimate, is available to you. In fact, the very fact that he calls us to worship is a reality in the Old Testament that should remind you that the God of the Old Testament is not some scary God saying, stay away from me, but the very God who would send his son to make a way of access for you the intricacies of who you are, your abilities and your limitations are all from God. And in it, you can see his creativity and wisdom. And as a shepherd owns his sheep, we're his great possession because of his role as creator and redeemer. And and all of this is this song's praise. And then suddenly it makes a radical transition. You heard it in verse eight. And this is where we have to look just for a minute at this caution. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts uh, as they did at Meribah on the day at Massah. Look at verse 9. When your fathers put me to the test, to put me to the proof, though they'd seen my work for 40 years, I hated that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What a weird song. I mean, this thing, you, you, that could be a good old praise song, right? Come, let us worship to the Lord. I'm just making this up. It's not a real one. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us worship and bow down, kneel before the Lord. Our, that's a real one. God, our maker. You know, it never goes, today if you hear his voice, do not harden hearts. He hated the generation. Right? I mean, do you, do you see the contrast there? I mean, the thing just went kind of death metal on that deal. You probably don't call it that, but I'm from the 90s, yo. I came here in a time machine. I think the change in tone is reflective of this portion of worship that we don't think about. That worship in the Bible is actually not only commanded... 
not only joyful, not only the reason that you're created to adore your maker who's worthy of all of it, but it's something that you need to be aware is dangerous. Worship is dangerous. That radical transition about the wilderness and destruction and hardening hearts, notice that the voice of the song has changed. Now God himself is speaking in the first person, interrupting the instructions on worship, and God himself says, when your fathers tested me, God takes on a first person telling you what it means to worship him rightly, and he cautions these ancient Israelites, and by association, by your spiritual heritage, he's cautioning all of us about right worship. He's cautioning you that you must worship rightly, not only the right God, but the way that he says he ought to be worshiped, and he warns it and gives it such a contemporary sound when he says, today, if you would hear his voice. There is urgency in the voice of God as he cautions these worshipers about a place called Meribah, about a place called Massah in the wilderness. And we could turn our Bibles to Exodus 17 and be reminded of Israel's disobedience, that instead of worshiping their God and maker and creator, they worshiped golden idols because it's what everyone else did. And so they crafted them and they formed them and they hoped that those idols would help them. And they worshiped and they sinned against God with their bodies and they devoted themselves to these created things instead of to their creator. And they did it in these two places called Meribah and Massah, words meaning strive against and to test. They tried God, they strove against him, they tested him, though they had seen his work. And that's why the message of this psalm, of Psalm 95, is as relevant and contemporary tonight to a bunch of high school students from all over the place as it was to the Israelites in their ancient worship. You see, they had seen God's great work in salvation. They'd been delivered from Egypt. God had rescued them from slavery and brought them towards their new land. And do you know how they responded? They turned their backs on him and they followed after their sinful, lustful pleasures. I'm afraid there are far too many teenagers in this room who have seen the work of God and salvation in their churches, in their youth groups, in their families, but they too are mastered by lust and sin and 10,000 distractions that constantly pull them away from God. And that's why you need a warning tonight about the non-optional nature of worship a woo at the beginning that, that calls you to come to God, that he has invited you in, he summoned it. He, he wants you to see him and experience this joy, but he also wants you to know that this is holy ground and you need to get your sandals off and take this seriously because it's a life and death matter. He proved it with his people Israel when he killed an entire generation for their sin. And it's not that he takes worship less seriously now than he did then. You know, this whole song gets picked up on in a book in the New Testament called Hebrews, a book that's full of warnings. And in chapter three of Hebrews, he quotes this whole second section. You see, those Christians in 65 AD were not sure about continuing on. Some of them had been arrested. According to Hebrews 10, they'd had their possessions taken away from them. The threat of martyrdom was an increasing reality. And many of them realized that their commitment and confession of Christ was too much for them. And so some of them had started to turn their backs on Christianity, to walk away from it. They had made a profession of faith. They had said, I love Jesus. He is the Messiah. But then they experienced hardships and they thought it might be time to back off of this Christian thing. Judaism was safer and so they considered recapitulation. They considered returning, walking away from Christ. 
And so that pastor who wrote them that letter in 65 AD thinks that the most appropriate place to direct their attention is the second half of Psalm 95 to remind them that the most dangerous thing that they face is the most dangerous thing that you face when it comes to ultimate worship. You see, the most dangerous thing you face, young people, is not some particular besetting sin that just keeps getting a hold of you. The most dangerous thing you face, young people, is not the influence of false doctrine, Mormonism or or some weird cult. That's not the most dangerous thing you face. The ultimate danger that every worshiper faces is identified by the author of Hebrews in chapter three. Flip over there with me for a second. We'll end right here. After quoting Psalm 95, Look at it there in verse seven of chapter three of Hebrews. You should recognize the words. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. Saw my works for 40 years. I was provoked with that generation. They said they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. It's the same words. It's Psalm 95. This preacher puts the text in front of them and then he tells them what the greatest danger they face is and it's the same danger that every generation of believers who is called to worship this glorious God faces and I need to warn you about it tonight and you need to take this warning seriously because some of you come from churches with great theology and you are perfectly content saying, well, you know, I'm just not a Christian. I I don't have faith. I, I just, you know, I don't know that God has chosen me and you ignore the repeated calls in the Bible to repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to figure out if you are one of God's elect or not, but to believe. Some of you have used the sovereignty and kingship of God as an excuse to follow Jesus, an excuse to not worship him. That is not what God's sovereignty is for. God's sovereignty is intended to enable you to worship him. And the author of Hebrews understands that because he's looking at an audience of people who are on the fence. They're wondering if their faith is real. They're wondering if they are gonna be able to persevere, if they're gonna be able to press on. Young people, some of you are in a crisis of faith. You are wondering, is it my faith or is it just because my daddy is a deacon? Is it just because my family has taken me to church my whole life? The danger that you face is not besetting sin. The danger that you face is not ultimately false doctrine. The danger that you face is unbelief. Unbelief. Look what he says in verse 12 of Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Here we find the greatest barrier and the gateway to true worship. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't ask other important things from you as this gateway to know him. He simply calls you to believe on his son. And that saving belief will lead to repentance. That saving belief will lead to good works that evidence your new life in Christ, but you must never add to faith It is faith alone that saves you. And he calls them towards exhortation to help each other see that they shouldn't listen to the lies of sin, verse 13. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Share in Christ. Hold our confidence firm to the end. And then back to Psalm 95, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. And that same contemporary phrase today echoes in the ears of everyone who's ever heard this text read to them in any Christian church, in any camp setting, in any place where the word of God is preached. They hear these same words as they were heard by that audience in ancient Israel, as they were heard by these Christians under the thumb of the Roman empire, and as they're heard tonight at this camp today, on this very day, tonight, if you hear his voice, Young people, do not harden your hearts. God is speaking through his word to your souls 
And he is by nature a savior. And he does not want you, desire for you to perish. But he has given this gift of eternal life. And it is yours to take by faith in the Son of God. Do not let anything hold you back from pursuing God by faith. From entering in to joyful, eternal worship by faith and by faith alone. The most dangerous sin and the fundamental call of all worshipers is to believe God or to not believe God. What's presented before these worshipers is eternal Sabbath rest. He says, enter into my rest or the opposite of it, which is disbelief. The most dangerous sin and the gateway to every other sin and every other failure and perseverance is unbelief. Whether it's sexual sin that you've been pulled into, it all flows and stems from unbelief, not believing that God's way is better. Whether it's a heart that's marked by covetousness and rebellion towards your parents, every single manifestation of sin stems from this first sin of not believing that God's way is better and listening to the deceitful lies of sin and hardening your heart. Young people, you are called to worship and you are cautioned that God deals very severely with those who refuse to worship him. To not know God is to not believe God. To believe God is to know him. Do not let unbelief contaminate and destroy your worship. Some of you are struggling with doubt. That's okay. Lots of Christians struggle with doubt. Some of you have questioned the goodness of God because of difficulties in your life. But you need to direct your heart to the word of God and tell your heart to believe and receive God's gate promises and to endure to know that God will prove that he is indeed faithful to his word and that he is indeed working in your life and that his character is indeed flawless. God calls us to worship and he cautions us and warns us of the dangers of unbelief. Some of you are dead in your sins. Some of you are still unbelievers, and I invite you even right now, as this psalmist did, to come to Christ. His arms are wide open to you. Come to him in faith. Come to him in repentance. Believe on his name and watch him transform your heart of unbelief and sin and fear and doubt to a heart full of confidence and trust and joy in the rock of our salvation and watch yourself under God's supreme majestic kingship and power as he transforms you into a worshiper of him today and for all eternity. Today I beg you, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Instead, worship this king in all all his majesty. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this call and caution to worship. May we take worship seriously. May we take the elevation of your name, our responsibility to declare your glory as the most significant privilege ever afforded to a human being. And may we respond accordingly. God, work savingly in the hearts of these young people, I pray. In Jesus' name.